Welcome to episode 389 with my guest, Elizabeth Menzel. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com, mentalpod, also the Twitter and Instagram handle you can follow me at. Um, we're going to talk a lot in this episode with uh, Elizabeth about uh, the relationship between sexism uh, and sexual trauma in general to PTSD, feeling safe in the world, etc., uh, etc., et and some of the modalities for healing that she has experience with. And it was this conversation with her that led me to go check out somatic experiencing. And I was going to tell the story about it here in front of the interview, but after recording it, I've decided to put it after the interview. And I think it's, it, I think you guys at least the regular listeners will like that story and it's worth it's worth listening to. So with that in mind, I'm going to get as quickly to the interview as possible and we're not going to have much in the way of surveys this week. Um, but I do want to remind you guys about our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. I'm a big believer in what they do. Uh, they provide online therapy. You can do it through video, audio, email, live text, chat, phone, smoke signal, Pony Express. I, I, those last two might, I might need to check on those last two, but go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire, and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And tons of people who listen to the show have been going there, and I hear great things about their experiences. Um, and my experiences have been great with my counselor, uh, Donna, and uh, she really really gets me into the nuts and bolts of uh, how, how to deal with issues that I am still struggling with. And um, yeah, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. And this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself always called upon. And she writes, my elderly mother fell and fractured her neck, a hair away from paralysis from the neck down. I moved in with my parents for a month to help. As I left, my dad thanked me for saving my mom's life, quote, for now. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization, depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. 
I started crying in a job interview saying, and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Elizabeth Menzel, and uh, she founded the Happy Woman Academy. And one of the things that you go around the world speaking on and dealing with is the relationship between sexism and PTSD. It's true. That's yeah. what I do. Uh, and a shocker, you experienced sexism <laughs> as a child. First of all, I can't believe anyone uh, experienced sexism. But <laughs> <laughs> before we started recording, Elizabeth was sharing a little bit of her uh, relationship with her father and Give me some of the some of the greatest the hits highlights. of this terrific relationship you yeah. uh, you had with this open minded, progressive man. <laughs> so, um, my father actually abandoned um, me as a child, and then the family because I was born female. <laughs> if, if I saw that in the movie, I would go. Nobody's that big of a dick. <laughs> no, he is, and and as a matter of fact, once um, I said to my brother. I, I have a big older brother who's eight years old, and I said, I just don't know why Dad hates me so much. And he said, oh, he doesn't hate you. You don't exist. And that just summed it up. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because you'd have to care about something to hate it, right? That's right. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but I find, you know, obviously I'm so not alone. Right. Yeah. I don't know a woman who hasn't experienced some form of sexism. I mean, I don't know a, a human who hasn't men experience it, too. Yeah. So men aren't left out of this equation at all. I just happen yeah. to, to focus on working yes. with women. And thank you for, for mentioning that. I got an email from somebody uh, yesterday, a guy who experienced uh, sexual assault. Yeah. And he said he's feeling frustrated um, with the, the Me Too movement because he feels like it's it's not being inclusive enough of men. And mm -hmm. and my feeling was, um, yes, I have experienced um, uh, sexual violation uh, mm -hmm. by both men and uh, women. Mm -hmm. But I feel like this is a moment in history that kind of needs to be its own thing and especially the workplace, because my feeling, and I could be wrong, is that the overwhelming amount of sexual harassment is towards women um, in the workplace. I know men get harassed, but mm -hmm. um, whereas with childhood sexual abuse, the numbers are a lot closer of male, male female in Correct. terms of experiencing abuse. And, and to me, that's what this felt like, mm -hmm. um, why this, this just needs to to be a national moment for women. Yeah, I feel that, that any group that is experiencing the majority of the depression, um, that while, yes, this type of, of sexism and sexual assault can happen to any gender, um, women have been silenced overall for so long, um, and that sexism is so much more than sexual assault. It just includes sexual assault as part of its problem. Um, and that, and overwhelmingly, in, at least in Western culture, white men have had the floor for um, centuries. And I think it's um, not too much to ask to have them 
uh, listen and not have to also be in the forefront. Um, and, and realistically, I mean, women understand men's pain and, and know that men have pain. Um, and, um, I just think it's okay for, for men to, to maybe open their ears a little more and, and close their, their mouths a little more, maybe just for a short while while we try to catch up and bring ourselves to a place of equality within society. Uh, we've yes. just been oppressed for a really long time. Uh, well said, and um, much more succinctly and elegantly than, <laughs> uh, than I tried. Um, so many questions. Let's start with your story. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, my, I mean, my story definitely started with my dad. Um, and, you know, so my mom was left, to as many women are, to care for two children. And she worked really hard. She worked night and day. How old were you when your dad left? Um, I was seven. So my brother was 15. Um and my brother soon went off to college, and you know, so he was older, he wasn't around much anyway. Um, but uh, he thinks I had it worse, <laughs> and I think he had it worse because he was with my dad even more, and my dad was quite abusive. He had narcissistic personality yes. disorder. Yeah, anybody who's so. a sexist, is, their assholishness is not going to be <laughs> with, stay within the boundaries of just sexism. Right. So I, I think I. As bad as it was and as bad as the, the, the neglect and the effects of the neglect were from my father, it, it still um, was better than having to endure him day in and day out. Um, he uh, secretly lived with another woman when I was a, a little girl, and nobody knew that. Um, they just thought he, he was a doctor, so he was, his practice was in a, about an hour away. And um, so... She didn't know he had a family. Our family didn't know she existed. Wow, what yeah. a fucking juggling act that yeah, must I, be. I can't fathom, right? And um, so when he came home, I'd, I'd have panic attacks every time because I was so terrified of him. Um, for, give me uh, some, some for instances. Of, sure. Uh, was it the words he would say? Was it his demeanor? Um, he, what? Was, he was... Um, he, <laughs> one of his big words was responsibility. And because he took no responsibility for his children, so he was always sort of yelling at us about responsibility. He was, he was a bully. He was a big bully. So he would tease me about, you know, I got my Nana's nose. I have a big nose. So he would tease me about my nose even as a child. Um, I was always trying to look perfect. And um, if I didn't look perfect, I didn't want to be seen at all. So Did he ever compliment you? Oh, God, good question. Did he ever compliment me? I do not remember. That's a blank. The fact that you can't remember is... <laughs> Telling you know, enough? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like horseshoes. You get clear, that's close enough. That's close enough. Uh, so, and, and you know, my, my story is, is so similar to so many of the women I work with, too. Um, but then, you know, my mom worked day and night to, to try to be both mother and father, um, but then, you know, kept a roof over her head, but then wasn't around because she was working so much. Mm. Um, and I learned, I think, as a lot of uh, us with the Puritan work ethic, that, that working hard is all that matters. Um, and I felt, I felt so guilty and like such a burden to my mother because she was working so hard to provide for me. 
um, that even though I was an A student, I quit high school at 16 and got my GED and ended up sort of following in her footsteps in the way that I had four jobs. I didn't take a day off for years um, and just really worked myself into exhaustion, as so many women do. It, and it seems like you still are somebody who has a gigantically full plate, the, the few emails that we've had. <laughs> okay, but I'm going to say this. That's this year, and that has never happened. I, okay. I literally teach women how, how to balance their being and doing. And this year, this has been the busiest three months of my life. I had my European, um, my Nordic Heal for Real tour planned six months ago, and then the other, um, I was speaking at the Women's Economic Forum in The Hague in Amsterdam, and then I ended up moving, and so it is, honest to God, been the fullest time in my life. Okay, okay. Yeah, I wasn't casting <laughs> aspersions. I, I was no. going to follow it up with the question of, mm. um, is throwing yourself into work something that comes from a place of self-soothing um, or is it just something that you just have all these things you genuinely want to accomplish because they have meaning attached to them? Um, my motivation is definitely the meaning attached to my okay. work that I really, really want to help women overcome the long-term effects of sexism and trauma and PTSD. So that keeps me motivated, but I am not very much of a self-starter. Um, one of the big long-term effects of PTSD is, is um, depression and sort of the inability to move off of the couch at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I went through a lot of years of overworking and never stopping. Um, and then when I stopped, I'd collapse and I wouldn't want to get up again. You know, so it was that really high-low, high-low type of thing. Um, but, But always appearing cheerful on the outside, sure. right? So not true happiness. Um, and n none of my friends or people around me back then would have told you that I had depression and severe PTSD. They wouldn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they wouldn't have known either. It was, it was very private. Um, and so I went on like that until I started... Um, I started my healing career with um, becoming a, a physical rehabilitative therapist. Um, I do neuromuscular therapy, and my focus became fibromyalgia. And I just started attracting all of these clients uh, that had fibromyalgia. And so really working with that, and at the same time, I started studying trauma. And then I started a four-year healing program at the Barbara Brennan School of Healing. I don't know if you know her. She was the mm -hmm. first female physicist at NASA. And um, she was the person who really brought the, the physics to the world of energy healing and really described it in the term of physics. And if that hadn't happened, I was so science and medically based, I never would have gotten into the healing work I now do if it wasn't for her. That is such an important field because there is such a widespread belief that it's all smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who are smoke and mirrors. Straight up. But my belief is that there's energy and <laughs> science uh, under, well, underneath yeah. it. It's just, can we measure it? Right. And so it, it is getting more and more quantifiable. Um, I've, I mean, I've been in my career for 25 years, um, and most of my work that I do with people is based on neurobiology. So science has caught up 
with the work I've been doing, mm -hmm. and now it's all quantifiable. So when I speak, I name the data, and in the back of the books, my I have three workbooks, Supercharge Your Health Vibe, Love Vibe, and Money Vibe, and in the back is all the quantifiable data that backs up what we as humans are able to do with our neurobiology, which is amazing. Yeah, it's such, it's so important. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly not helped by all the charlatans uh, out there that um, give the things that are difficult to quantify a bad a bad name. Yeah, I'm, it's funny. I don't hang out with a lot of healers. I mostly hang out with a lot of academics <laughs> and, um, and scientists. In fact, when I went to speak at the Women Economic Forum, it was agriculturists, people in tech, and me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you're my people, even though I'm not really one of you. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you, when you look back at your interest in trauma mm. as you were getting mm. these clients mm -hmm. with fibromyalgia, um, do you feel like that was the universe uh, kind of opening a pathway for you? Or was it a conscious decision on your part that, that there was a link and you wanted to know more? There was not a conscious decision when it started at all. Um, I was in my own exploration with it because these people just kind of kept coming out of the woodwork and coming to me for healing. And so it, it actually took a, a couple of years before I even started to see the link between my clients, right? And that's what you always want to do is what's the common thread here? And so what I saw, because all these very different people with different backgrounds, um, that the common link... I called it at that time, frozen fear. All of these people had this frozen fear. And then it was after that, that I started studying trauma and learned that trauma is frozen fear. It's frozen stress. The stress response gets interrupted in some way where you don't get to fully run away, fully fight, or you freeze in some way and get trapped. And this, you don't get to work out all those chemicals that are produced in your right. system. And so it sinks back into the soft tissue of your body. And that's, as far as what I found, is what creates the, the chronic pain and stiffness in the fibromyalgia. Uh, I, I would imagine you've read the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. Um, and one of the things he says in it is he talks about in the animal kingdom. Uh, well, why don't you say it? So when <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to say it any better than you could, but um, so yeah when when an animal gets to run away fully, or gets to fight and save its own life or get eaten, but gets to fight and save its own life and and or it freezes, if they don't burn all those chemicals, what happens once they're in safety is they shake. And they shake and they shake and they shake. And that shaking, full body shaking, is what burns off the chemical. And so when we nearly get hit by a car but don't, right, or something bad happens to us, we feel shaky. And that's because we want to shake. We want to burn off those chemicals. Mm. We either want to kick ass, we want to run for miles, and if we don't, if we aren't able to complete to a uh, healthful resolution, the stress response, we want to shake. 
And if we would let ourselves shake, what do we do? We put it on lockdown, mm-hmm. right? We're like, oh, I'm just going to make myself be still. I'm just going to, I'm going to get myself together here, right? We clamp it down. Go in the corner, right? We <laughs> I'm going to stuff safe. it way down deep inside, <laughs> and and we we do stuff it way down deep inside, and that that trauma burrows into the soft tissue of your body. It burrows into your psyche, and for some people. I was experiencing my PTSD symptoms all along, and you know, it took me a while to know it. A lot of people don't experience their symptoms. They're on so much lockdown, and it starts to come out in their 40s and 50s. In, in what ways? Um, sleeplessness, anxiety, depression, short-temperedness. Um, those are the, I'd say, that the top ones, avoidance. Right, not not wanting to go out so much anymore, not wanting to see people, losing interest in things that they always felt really keen about. Mm-hmm. Um, and what ways do you find it presenting itself uh, neuromuscularly? Chronic tension, chronic tension, you, and chronic you pain. Massage this one thing, and then another part locks up, or it, what? It, it it never actually really goes away. There might be some relief, but Oh, my neck always hurts. Oh, my shoulder's always stiff. Right? It just, the chronic tension builds. Um, I know uh, for myself, too, when uh, before I, well, it's actually part of what prompted me to go into physical rehabilitation was my chronic tension started at 12 years old. And my mom started sending me to a a massage therapist and um, chiropractor and I had that chronic tension until a year and a half ago, and I'm going to be 52. So for 40, almost 40 years, I had that chronic tension. Even with really wonderful, um, for me, the best form of of therapy for trauma-related symptoms is um, somatic experiencing therapy. Talk more about that, because I know about EMDR, but I don't know about much beyond that. Okay, great. So Dr. Peter Levine... um, is the doctor that came up with somatic experiencing therapy. He has, at this point, over 42 years of clinical data and research as well as experiential. He's a great writer and great speaker um, and great therapist. Um, So really, it has to do with helping you find the um, place within you that isn't traumatized so that you can reorient and re-identify with a place within you that isn't traumatized and working out in a safe way um, that locked trauma in your system. Um, And I say safe, and that's the word that's so important because there are so many forms of therapy that mean well that are not safe for trauma survivors and that can re-traumatize. For for instance? I I don't want to vilify. Okay. I rather not. I don't feel comfortable doing that. And the um, expertise of the therapist has a tremendous amount to do with it. The expertise as well. of the therapist, of course, in in anything, in any doctor or gardener or shoemaker, it, it, the expertise um, has to do with it. Um, but also, just there are uh, too many forms of therapy. Um, like re-experiencing was big in the seventies, right? Um, it it just. It makes you re-traumatized, right? And the, I love um, there's a there's a hyper shortened definition of trauma, which is too much, too soon, too fast. Hmm. Anything 
that happens too much, too soon, too fast can be traumatizing and can cause PTSD symptoms. And, and uh, women are more than twice as likely to get PTSD symptoms than men. Um, so people always think that trauma happens because of uh, if you're a soldier, if you, if you were raped, if you had a terrible car accident. That's what we associate with being traumatic. But PTSD, I mean, trauma can happen from a thousand tiny little cuts, from little things happening. Neglect. And, and neglect, sure. And I see, I see sexism being that thousand tiny little cuts. You don't have to be raped to have to suffer the effects of sexism. It is so the water we're swimming in. It's around us all of the time. And like I was saying to you earlier, like I didn't even know how much I was suffering from sexism and the, the PTSD that every woman I have ever met, once I start working with her or we get into a deep conversation, I can see her PTSD symptoms yeah. around sexism. Low self-esteem, feeling powerless, um, shutting down sensuality. Hating their body. Hating their body. Huge one. Huge. Yeah. Not, not being able to get paid their worth because they don't think that they're worth as much as men. Or just that they flat out feel worthless. What was it? Was your dad still home? Well, I guess he would have been when uh, the ERA movement was happening. I can't imagine how much your father hated that. I remember, you know, he was always a bully, so he was, you know, putting and a racist, right? So it was, it was all, you know, women and anyone who wasn't him. Um. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if somebody just came out one day and said, I hate anybody who isn't me. That, that was, Wait, I hate me. And then they had their breakthrough. Oh, that would have been lovely. Isn't it funny how often people are actually yelling at themselves? Mm. I mean, your father no yelling at you about responsibility while he has two families. Right. While he's being utterly Secret irresponsible. Families. Yeah. 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 Um, but go ahead. No, no. So, tr so true. So true. And then, you know, what we do is, is internalize that bully. And mm -hmm. become our own bully. I certainly have. I honestly, in the last few months, had one of my biggest breakthroughs um, when I realized about six months ago that I was still very subtly and very quietly being really hard on myself and really mean to myself and that I was still bullying myself and putting myself down. So I doubled down. Um, I doubled down on, on let's see. My, my second most, I have a, a list of five things that, that women who I've witnessed now, because I've been doing this for so long, that if they don't do these five things, they're, they're going to fail and not heal. If they do these five things, they're going to heal. So the second thing is being kind in your mind. So I was like, I am going to be more kind in my mind. I am doubling down on this. And I just started talking really kindly to myself like all freaking day. And a couple of months ago, I noticed that my back, I'm going to cry, that my background voice was, Liz, you're doing so great today. Wow. I'm so proud of you. Liz, right on. You can do this, girl. That is my background voice now. Wow. And what was it before? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually because I've done so much work, it was getting subtler and subtler. And that's why it was harder to detect, right? You know this, right? You've been doing uh, therapy and, and healing for a long time. It used to be the two by four that was whacking us over the head. That, You're an idiot. Yeah, right? Then it just becomes like, 
Well, you really fucked that one up, didn't yeah. you? Right, and it's quiet, and it's mm-hmm. just sliding in under the surface. Oh, you still are so stupid. Yeah, well, that was embarrassing. Yeah, right, and it's just this sly little voice that gets mm-hmm. in there. So you should have done better. Oh, shoulda, shoulda, right? coulda, woulda's. You know, one of the things I I, I wanted to um, mention when you were talking about the uh, going 100 miles an hour or shutting down <laughs> is there's a fantastic uh, article written by um, uh, Dr. Alan Rappaport, and it's called uh, Co-Narcissism. And he talks about the effects of being raised by a narcissistic mm-hmm. parent. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean a, you know a parent with... Uh, diagnosed narcissistic personality disorder, but, okay. uh, you know, a narcissistic uh, parent. And uh, some of the effects that are really common in the children of that uh, is black and white thinking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Addictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. anybody who's never read that, um, it's only five pages long. You can just Google it and it's uh, it's some it's some good reading. Uh, so going back to the uh, the seventies. Mm. Uh, oh yeah. So I remember I just watched the Billie Jean King movie on the, the plane it? back from Norway. It was great. I, I I thought it was pretty darn good. Um, and you know they're such great actors. Uh, but I remember that time as a kid, right? So I I remember um, the whole Billie Jean King thing and women burning their bras. I was born in '66, so. Uh, with my dad, you know, he wasn't around much. When he was around, it, it, there was co- it was constant snide remarks, constant bullying, constant put-downs. You know, if, if you dropped something, you were stupid, you were clumsy, you better watch out. You know, it was, it, it was just down your throat all the time. Um, and, but, you know, he was that hard on my brother, too, but he spent time with my brother. They did things together. My my brother, of course, was going to college. It was never mentioned to me. Right? Because your father didn't care about you going to college, right? It, it, or what? It, it, I was a girl. What did it matter? I should just, you know, get married, have babies. That. What else is there to do? A correction. Have stupid babies, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> stupid babies that drop things. <laughs> right? So... Yeah, there was just, it was just constant. And, you know, I never, ever saw my mother and father embrace or kiss or really have any level of of intimacy or genuine back and forth kindness. Yeah, I I didn't, I never did either. So painful. Yeah, you never even realize it until you get to be, you know, maybe a teenager or older and you begin to have affectionate moments. Or wonder why you struggle to have affectionate moments. My mother was very affectionate with us, and my my brother and I were. My mother was, so that was good. My grandparents all were, but on never between side. those two. Yeah, on both sides. Really? Mm-hmm. So on why do you sides. think your dad um, <coughs> was? If if his parents weren't, um, if his parents were affectionate, was there just another side to them that you guys didn't see, or had they changed? Well, his father was not affectionate um i got to see that i got to see his father once a year just bend that down just a tiny bit yeah not quite that much perfect okay um i got to see um my grandfather on my paternal side maybe once a year um at christmas time 
My Nana, uh, I saw every other weekend. She came and stayed with us. She had a hard Brooklyn accent. She was awesome. She was great. She would hug and kiss us, no problem. Um, but, you know, he was raised, right, in the 40s and, and 50s and didn't necessarily show a lot of affection. My Both of my grandmothers, maternal and paternal, um, had severely traumatizing things happen to them. Uh, my paternal, my father's mother... Um, tripped on a toy at the top of the stairs, fell down the stairs with my father's baby sister in his arms and killed her. What? So my, my Nana obviously got very depressed, um, and got shock therapy. Oh, oh my God. So she wasn't around a lot to be there for him. And then he had this German distant father, uh, father, um, and then they divorced. Um, and then my grandmother had um, a very traumatic childhood. Her sister died, and then her mother died in childbirth, and she was left to raise all the children when she was 13 years old. And um, so just a lot of trauma, you yeah. know? And, you know, if, if it sounds like we're piling on uh, <laughs> her dad as if he is the source of of all of this you know mm-hmm. i think it's it's worth mentioning i assume you agree with mm-hmm. me that these are generational ripples that yeah. go back and it's and not that's the thing yes. that's the thing I, I and i i've seen it um i see the the trauma going back in my own lineage um i actually have a ton of compassion for my father um i understand that he was traumatized and he's scared. And he's scared. Well, and that he has a mental disorder that has gone completely undiagnosed. And as you know, with narcissistic personality disorder, um, you will not seek therapy. No. So, um, you know, it was only as I progressed in my own education as I got older that I realized it was always, you know, dad must be crazy. But it was like, oh, <laughs> he really does have a personality disorder, right? So I actually have a ton of compassion, as I do f- with my friends with personality disorders. And um, what I've found and what I've discovered is that the healthiest thing for me was to just not be around him so much. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've done. And then, of course, as many women do, I married my father, right? I married a man who uh, seemed like he was strong and wise. And um, he also had a personality disorder and was extremely abusive and uh, neglectful and would leave me, like, locked up. I mean, it was really bad. So... um, you know, we, we, we repeat it until we heal it, mm-hmm. and until it's revealed, it can't get healed. Yeah. So. And, and often it seems like catnip. It's like catnip <laughs> that, you're, that is poisonous. You know, the person that represents the unavailable mm-hmm. parent, there's something so intoxicating mm-hmm. about it at mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. and yet it's the, it's the worst thing. Well, for I us. like that you say that the person that represents the unavailable parent that. I haven't heard that exact sentence before. That's awesome. Um, I really, I thought this person I was marrying was the polar opposite of my father. And he literally, like a lot of abusers do, once once they have you, that's when they show the other side of their personality. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, a, a, a red flag is people that come on with a ton of charm. Yeah. In the beginning, oh, a ton of compliments, yeah. and I always say, look for, look at their actions and not their words. Yep. And um, a lot of times, if there's a disconnect between that, mm-hmm. uh, run. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'd say most, some of the most charming people. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, going back to the. Um, thing about working with the the clients with fibromyalgia Mm, what what did you discover as you began working on them physically Mm -hmm. what if there are any case examples Mm -hmm. you think that can kind of um help yeah highlight um i'd say that that the common physiological thread is is always right chronic pain and tension um and working with fascia and connective tissue uh, especially surface fascia. It's called myofascial. And uh, for those of us that don't know uh, technically what fascia is, including me, I know the term, but I don't know exactly what it means. So fascia is a connective tissue that is a very thin sheet. And if you think about a piece of chicken, it has the skin, and then under the skin is that another very thin membrane. Oh, yeah. That's fascia. So fascia is amazing because in a mammal, it wraps not only every muscle, it wraps every muscle fiber, every muscle cell, every organ. It also runs underneath your skin, just like in a chicken, but it's one sheet. Mm. And it keeps us juicy. <laughs> it keeps everything in. <laughs> yes. And so uh, th- that is where some of the trauma gets locked into the so fascia? It does. And so what you can get is sort of like... When I ask people, like, where exactly does it hurt? They'll say something like, this whole area hurts. And they'll point to, like, their whole upper back, their whole lower back. It can happen in sheets Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And so working with them and doing a combination of myofascial release work before you can even get into the soft tissue, the the muscle tissue, rather, um, is really important. And so, yeah, something to look out for. I mean, if, if you do have a lot of chronic tension, I think the easiest way to, to say it is using myself as an example, because I had so many years of chronic tension and got tons of body work and lots of healing work and therapy, and it would get me so far. I would start to feel better, but it would always come back. And I said up until about a year and a half ago, right? It would always come back. And then I started doing um, what's called nonlinear movement. And specifically, I was doing the nonlinear movement method. And because trauma, fibromyalgia, is this frozen, stuck trauma, this frozen, stuck stress, um, we tend to freeze and feel paralyzed at certain times, or our mind goes blank, right? And so... Um, doing this non-linear movement unhooks these neural pain loops. And I did it, I was being trained to become a teacher of it. And um, so I had to do it every day. And after only, oh my gosh, eight weeks, ten, 10 weeks, 10 weeks is when I really noticed I was in the classroom and I noticed for the first time I wasn't in pain. 
And I was doing the nonlinear movement for the emotional benefits. I wasn't really thinking about the physical. And so I, I, I was in shock that I have no pain. I'm sitting here with no pain. Wow. I'm sitting here right now with no pain. And that blew my mind. And I turned to my teacher, Dr. Michaela Baum, and I just looked at her and I said, I have no pain. And she's known me for, at this point, 11 years. And she said, I know, you've been practicing. I could tell when you walked in the door that you were consistently moving non-linearly every day. So what does moving non-linearly specifically mean? So we're so used to moving in certain patterns. And right, we move forward, we rarely move backwards, we rarely move diagonally, we move very much on this plane. Mm-hmm. And um, even when we're dancing, we're dancing to a rhythm, so we're keeping a beat. It's, it's linear. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're doing non-linear movement, there are, is no habitualness happening. And it gives your brain a chance to unlock Patterns. So kind of like the animal shaking? Yeah, similarly. And what can happen during it, I, I, I guide it, um, what can happen during it is spontaneous shaking. And it comes out of nowhere. Um, I started spontaneously shaking about 10 years ago when I got into a safe romantic relationship. For the first time in my life, I felt safe enough Instead of being alone or in an abusive relationship, which all I had for 42 years before that, I felt safe enough that spontaneous shaking started happening. What was that like? Um, I knew what it was because I'd studied trauma. And luckily, he used to be a rape crisis counselor, and he studied trauma, and he knew what it was. And you literally, sometimes it would just be an arm. And it it would just start flopping around out of nowhere, or just my leg. And sometimes my whole body, and it would last a few minutes, and then it was over. Wow. And, and because we both knew what it was, it didn't scare us. I think if we hadn't have known, it would have been pretty damn scary. But there wasn't even emotion with it. And sometimes I would cry, same in nonlinear movement. Sometimes I cry, but it's such a clean release, it's not even connected to a memory. It's literally shaking out of you. Mm-hmm. And so I started shaking about 10 years ago, but it still didn't heal that chronic pain until I was being consistent and doing it every day. And what would you do every day? Nonlinear movement method. For how long? Um, I was doing it for between 20 minutes to an hour. Now I do it from between 10 minutes to 30 minutes. Sometimes I get longer. And what do you actually do? Um, If you go to thehappywomanacademy.com slash n l m m class nonlinear movement method class you can see a really little clip but um we'll put links to uh uh, all your stuff on the the website um and that also will explain the the what's happening neurobiologically behind it um but you you move in any way that your body wants to move and so it doesn't matter it can be fast it can be slow it can be undulating it can be shaking your body is the boss and the director, and you just mine wants move. to move to Hawaii. Yeah, <laughs> so we're we're on mats and we stay on our mat. Our yeah. eyes are closed, so we stay very internal, and so no one sees each other. You're in yeah. your own little world, um, and you just keep moving, and you don't stop. The three rules are eyes closed, keep moving, no stopping, 
and uh, that's it. Do you think that that's why sometimes people feel a release from speaking in tongues? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe it's doing something neurobiologically. Ooh, I wonder if there's a study about it. We should look it up. That would be really cool. Going back to um, Peter Levine. <laughs> yes. Um, so he was a pioneer in somatic uh, yes. therapy. We know about EMDR. Yeah. Um, talk about the breakthroughs that he had. Uh, you mentioned the animal shaking it off. Right. And then we kind of got uh, right. sidetracked. So, so ex- exactly that. And, and he really, in his book, um, In an Unspoken Voice, How the Body Releases Trauma and Restores Goodness, he really takes you through each each step in trauma release and exactly how and why it is happening that way and why it works. So um, there's nine main phases. Um, and, and, you know, just honestly through years of seeing what, like any good scientist, seeing what worked, what didn't, and he got a lot of it from the animal kingdom, mm. from watching animals. And this is a thought I had when I was young, and then he taught me, why I don't have to worry about it, which is when since I was very young and I learned about prey animals and predators, I thought I felt sorry for prey animals because I thought they must feel scared all the time. Hmm. And um, you know, I'm a bleeding heart. I walk around with right. <laughs> a big open heart. So I was worried about this from my childhood until I started reading uh, Dr. Levine's work, which is and he explains it right that animals aren't traumatized, that animals in the wild, prey animals aren't traumatized because they either get away, um, you know, run, fight, and use up those chemicals, and whatever they don't use up, they shake off. And then they're totally fine, and they go about their business untraumatized. We don't do that. We go on lockdown, and we're told to go on lockdown. We're told to suck it up. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're 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 told you know that emotions don't matter and that they're not as important, and to get it together, so we put it on lockdown all the time. So if I decided I want to go do somatic therapy, I've done EMDR, okay, and and I did about a half dozen sessions, and one was profound. I slept for almost two days solid yes. afterwards, and I felt like my body had been oiled yes. afterwards, like joints were moving that had. Yes never moved so freely but i feel like something is still trapped i find myself clenching there you go a lot so clenching is a is another ptsd symptom okay so Um, what what would it look like for me to yep tomorrow what should i do i send people i send um before i work with someone i do a, a really long intake with them and i ascertain we ascertain together am i the right fit because I don't want to work with anyone who I'm not the right fit with. So what I do is I send people to www.traumahealing.com. And there you can find a somatic experiencing therapist in your mm. area. That's how I found mine. Okay. And and they do things other than EMDR, correct? Yeah, yes. It's not EMDR at all. Okay. It is somatic experiencing. Okay. So somatic. So EMDR doesn't fall under the umbrella of somatic experiencing. No, somatic experiencing oh. is Dr. P. Le- Peter Levine's oh. body of work. Okay. Now, there is, this is somatic experiencing. There is any type of somatic experience 
EMDR would fall under. I see. So that's the kind of the uh, the brand name right. of his therapy. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So yeah. somatic therapy is the umbrella that both of those probably are yeah. underneath. That makes okay. sense. So what would they do uh, in there? Give me a give me a typical case. Um, well, I am not a somatic experience therapist yet. <laughs> give me a couple of years. Um, what I did in mind, I can tell you, um, and it was so it was so cool because I, I had somatic experiencing therapy for about a decade. I knew Dr. Peter Levine's work, but in this last book that I just mentioned in an unspoken voice, he really explains each step. And I was like, that's what my therapist does. That's what my therapist does. Um, so I don't have them memorized, so I don't want to get it wrong. But I can tell you that um, you do feel extremely safe. Um, they really have you contact in your body how things feel, finding that safe space. And I remember um, the first time for me, I was, I was freshly traumatized. Something, uh, someone had just been violent with me. And... Um, the safe space was the very tip of my pinky. Like that was the only safe space I could find that didn't feel shaky. You know, so you, you anchor in that safe space and so that you can safely, without being overwhelmed, which other trauma therapies that are dangerous sort of overwhelm you with sensation. You want to be very careful to not be overwhelmed with side with sensation because trauma is too much too soon too fast right. so they do um, something called titration which is feeling very safe and just just dipping a toe back into that trauma and letting it move and shake yes. through you and then feeling very stable again yeah. sounds a little bit too like uh, exposure therapy uh, in terms of gradually um, you know dealing with something mm -hmm. tiny bits at, mm -hmm. a, at, a, at a time and if you Dosing. You know, dosing yes. is very important. Yeah, as you were very sharing important. this, I was thinking so many of the paths for healing, an important part of it are baby steps. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, what's so great and why I'm so grateful for, for somatic experiencing is um, I worked with my therapist for about 10 years, and this was so awesome. And he said to me one day, you know, Elizabeth, you've come so far. You're doing so well. Um, the only thing I can really suggest, you don't really need me that much anymore. The only thing I can really suggest for you is a practice of nonlinear movement. And I said, I'm in teacher training to become a oh, nonlinear movement teacher. Hilarious. Woo! It was such a confirmation for me. Wow. And then really never imagining how far, much farther I'd get with that in such a short amount of time. And you want to hear something really embarrassing? Sure. This is the podcast for it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know the name of nonlinear movement, but I had been doing it with my mentor, Dr. Michaela Bohm, for 11, well, let's see, I started working with her in 2008. So since 2008, whenever I do a workshop with her, she would open with that. She'd have us do some nonlinear movement. It wasn't named. Mm-hmm. But every time we did it, I'd have that, what you said, that well-oiled feeling, and I'd be so calm, and I'd be like, man, I could just do that at home. I should do this more often. And I wouldn't. 
And then I'd go there a few months later, do another work, do it again. Hey, this is that thing. I should do that. For 10 freaking years, I did that before I became a teacher. Would Tai Chi fall under the banner? No, because it's linear. You are doing a set prescribed movement. This is absolutely no prescribed movement. I've now done it hundreds of times, and I don't move the same way. How about shitty Tai Chi? Would Ooh, that fall really under bad the Tai Chi? Yeah. Mm. I'm going to go reserve badtaichi.com, become a healer. <laughs> I think shitty Tai Chi is better. <laughs> shitty Tai Chi was the name I was a male dancer uh, under when I was in Thailand. <laughs> Actually, Tai Chi is from uh, China, right? Mm. No, Qigong chi, chi is Chinese. Oh, okay. What, what's, where does tai chi, Where's tai chi come from? I don't want to say the wrong yeah. thing. I'm going to shut up. I know it's not Nebraska. I know Qigong is Chinese because yes. I was trained in Qigong um, by a, a Qigong master. How was Qigong? Seven years. Is he good? For me, it was great. I was just looking uh, oh, around. I said, is he, is he good? Oh, is he <laughs> good? I'm sorry. I thought you said, is it good? <laughs> it was great for me. Yeah. So now that we've talked about all of those things let's go back to the primary Mm. thing we wanted to talk about which is sexism and ptsd and for what are what are some myths about sexism Mm. and ptsd and what are some truths that people might not be aware of Mm. and the more concrete of an example that you can give if there's a real life example while main, maintaining someone's anonymity. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I honestly, I, I think you could get real life examples from any woman on the planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I know, I know someone who, um, whose boss would always say to her, but never anyone else in the office always, uh, frame um, her assignments around blowjob jokes. Right, but it was ha-ha. Isn't that funny? No, it's not funny. It's really damaging and hurtful. Um, right, so didn't touch her, never cornered her. Never, right, so there's just, there's can be these little things that happen, but they're degrading. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't know whether or not it's going to escalate. Right. And, and it's, you know, it's often that thing where it's the person in power. Yes. So you're helpless. Right. And that's not to say that that alone on its own isn't enough yeah. to fuck somebody up. Yeah. But I, I want to paint the picture, the full picture for somebody who has never experienced that, especially in the workplace. The three dimension, dimensionality the full scope mm-hmm. of the experience mm-hmm. because a lot of times people think it's, oh yeah, it affects your self-esteem a little bit. It's annoying. And they think end of story, but they don't realize how much more there is to it. Yeah. Than, I mean, it's like that. being, it's like being pecked to death by ducks because it doesn't just start in the workplace. It starts when we're born, you know, it, it starts when we're little girls. By the time we get to the workplace, it's been the water we've, we've been swimming in for so long. You know, so, uh, you know, women do not get raises as often as men. We know they don't get paid as much as men. Um, and a really uh, common thing that's happened. I mean, I, I can honestly, I've heard this exact example from 30, 40 women, which is they will be in a, in a meeting. They will make a suggestion 
it gets either unacknowledged or pushed aside. Like, mm, yeah, maybe I'm not so sure. And then Jim makes yes. the same exact suggestion. Yes. Oh my God, Jim, that is freaking brilliant. Yes, we are doing that. Everyone, you should be like Jim. Pay attention to him. This guy is golden. Yes. And for those of you that think, no, that doesn't really happen, uh, I know women who have told me stories of that mm-hmm. happening to mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And then that person being credited mm-hmm. with it and oftentimes their career advancing mm-hmm. because of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know uh, a woman who was in the military, was at a, a military party, and on her way out was systematically raped by her colleagues at the party. We read an email last last on last week's podcast. It won't be last week's podcast when this airs, but <laughs> by a woman who um, finally made some progress in her uh, healing her PTSD from being raped by her superior and other and other people, yeah. um, and no action being taken on her part, yeah. and being given the wrong type of. Um, uh, therapy mm-hmm. at the VA then not really understanding what it was that she that she needed yeah yeah um but i can, i would i would love to talk about things that help people heal fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. and lift this mood yes <laughs> cuz we were just going to bum people out <laughs> yes. man um and and I mean, that's what I do. That's what I go all over the world speaking about because people feel hopeless, right? I mean, that's part of PTSD is to feel helpless and hopeless. And um, there isn't just hope. There is science. <laughs> Yay. Um, I'm a neuroscience geek and uh, kind of missed my calling with that one, I think. Uh, but I mean, had I had a dad that thought I could get an education, I probably would be a neuroscientist because I love this stuff. Um, so the, the things that I've noticed for all the people I've worked with that actually heal, including myself, I don't, I don't get away with it either. You cannot coast forever. And I find that, that if people do, um, just even a couple of these things, they'll start to feel better, but then they'll get frustrated because they'll just take two steps forward and one step back. So the one is... And is it this with anybody with PTSD? Anybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With PTSD. This is what I've noticed. Um, One, you just have to be willing to heal and do what it takes to heal. To just be willing to open that door and do what it takes. You've got to be willing to release the old and receive the goodness. Mm -hmm. So if you're willing... You've got to be kind in your mind. And I, I really, I told that story because I, that, I, look, I've been doing this for so long and I had to take myself to the next level, right? It was getting, it was so sneaky. So kind in your mind. Three, you've got to keep moving. You've got to, trauma is frozen, stuck stress. You've got to keep moving. For me, it's been that nonlinear movement that has been my lifesaver. So, it, you're never done 
You're never done. I remember um, seeing my healer probably 20 years ago, and and I'd already been been receiving energy healers healing and therapy for a couple of years. And I went in there and I said, you know, I just can't wait till I'm done. When am I going to be like? I'm thinking a few more months of this, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm I'm done. And she laughed and she said, "Honey, you're never done." And I burst into tears. There was such a level of self-hatred and uh, pain, physical pain and emotional pain and frustration. Um, that's all gone. The frustration, the physical and emotional pain, the, the past residual pain, that is mostly all gone. Um, what I find is what I said earlier is it's no longer the two by four. It's very subtle now. Mm. It's the little ways that I can be kinder to myself and kinder to others, right? And when you're kind to someone else but not to yourself, you're not going to heal. And so many women especially are really good at taking other care of others and terrible at taking care of themselves. Yeah. yeah. You know? Um, and that's ingrained into us, that a good woman takes care of others and is selfless. And, and there's, there's uh, such a dichotomy with that because women are, are told that you're selfish if you take care of, your, if you take care of yourself, you're selfish. Mm-hmm. But if you don't take care of yourself, you've let yourself go. And if you show uh, a an emotion uh, that is perceived to be the least bit male, uh, you're unattractive and you're a bitch or right. whatever if you're powerful, it is. You're a bitch. Yes. Right. If you're emotional, you're weak. Mm-hmm. But if a man is powerful, he's strong. And if a man is passionate, he's worthy. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's there's just all these dichotomies. Women are just so overwhelmed with and undermined by these dichotomies. And they're constant. You know, they're constant. Um, so going back. To, so this movement is very, very important. And and I've I've found, too, that um, with myself and a lot of my clients, um, they, they can go in these opposing directions, right? They either work out too much, too hard, and they're just kind of destroying themselves, or they, they join the gym, but they never really go, right? It can be these, these two opposite ways that people with PTSD, they push themselves, they're overdoers, or they're stagnant. Stagnancy yes. is the word I've been looking for. So you want to you wanna come to that happy middle place. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because there was a period of time when I would run in 105 degree smoggy heat and then a period of time where I, I went to the gym, I swiped my card, the woman behind the counter gasped and said, you haven't been here in 700 days. <laughs> there we go. But go ahead. No, it's, that's, yes. that's perfect, right? That's the PTSD. It, it'll, it'll get you like that. Mm. So, um, so the, the keep moving was keep one. Keep moving, yeah, and the, and the nonlinear movement is what what unhooks it. And you just mean every day find um, some practice mm-hmm. that that yep. has that that keeps you moving. Yeah, keeps you moving. Mm-hmm. But you don't mean during your day <laughs> never sit down. No, I do not okay. mean that. And 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 right, and it's it's to do it healthfully, 
to do it healthfully so that it feels good. Not compulsive and from fear. There we go. Yeah. Um, and then the fourth thing is consistency, right? You can't, you can't like take a shower on a Monday and expect to be clean on Friday. Yeah. And you've, you've got to stay consistent with whatever your, I call them energetic practices, whatever your energetic practice is, you've got to be consistent with it. We, none of us can coast forever. It doesn't work, me included. So when it's, it's therapy, um, uh, whether it's yoga, meditation, whatever it is, consistency is key. You've got to keep doing it. And I would imagine when you go through a period where you're not consistent, don't talk negatively to yourself That's for right. having done that. Yeah, just come back and do it. Just come back and do just it. Just come back and do it. That's it. Just, oh, I love you. I'm going to love you even more. And we're going to get back on this. And I'm whatever it is, I'm going to meditate again. I'm going to exercise again. I'm going to eat healthy again. Just lovingly bring yourself back. No scolding people. Never, I've never <laughs> met someone who shamed themselves and into being the person they wanted to be. No, never. right? Doesn't yes. work, does it? Yeah. No, but you can love yourself into it. Yeah, it's yeah. so awkward though. It's so fucking awkward <laughs> talking nice to yourself. It it feels so Stuart Smiley. That, you know, it's there are times oh when God. I do it and I just want to punch myself in the face. I've got to say, I've had a big shift with it. Yeah, really, in the last few months, it's gotten. I mean, I'm I'm downright giddy this year, and again, especially being the the busiest time of my life, I've stayed. Because of, well, I, I do something I teach called the Happy Woman Formula. Because of doing that and because of keeping these five things in place lovingly, not compulsively, um, I haven't gotten sick. I got no jet lag. I was going back and forth to Europe repeatedly. I got no jet lag. Um, I've, I've just stayed really healthy. I've stayed really happy. I mean, I've been going through some of the biggest stressors. I would imagine you're less reactive as, so as well. I laugh things off now. Things that used to either piss me off or bring me down. Now, I just laugh them off. It's a small thing to a giant. Having a, a, a good baseline of peace mm. in one's life mm -hmm. is the most resilient tool mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to not mm -hmm. take people and life personally yeah and to have faith whatever it is yeah. that you believe in um it but it's so hard to get there it, that's the consistency piece honestly that's the consistency piece i started i was trained i was i i did louise hayes last teacher training in mm -hmm. 2000 and so i've been i've been working with um the concept of positive affirmations for a long time. And I've taken them really into the realm of neurobiology. And that is that it's not talking to yourself. It is actually feeling it and actually letting yourself feel good. So kind and, of letting your walls down. Well, actually letting yourself feel happy. I mean, for those of us who have been traumatized, it's so foreign to feel consistently good. Yeah, because it feels like you're bullshitting yourself, yeah. like you're being dishonest. Well, because the because there's so much fear in your system, there's even a fear if I feel good, something's going to come and hit me over the head and take it away from me. Because mm -hmm. that's what happened to us when we were little and when we got traumatized. We were feeling fine, and then boom, something horrible happened to us. So we don't trust 
feeling good right. and we aren't able to sustain it right so to feel good is to feel uh uh unaware and vulnerable in a bad way like like it's i'm open to more enemies coming at me mm. because i'm so busy smiling that i'm not hyper vigilant and i'm not thinking worst case scenarios all day long so is that is that kind of something that's at work? I'm trying to I imagine think I, what I, it's I can like. tell you are, and I can tell you're working hard at it. There's there's a bit to unpack there because um, because there aren't enemies that are out to get me. So, and if someone shows up, at, I mean, the, what the brain is t- is telling you, resisting the nice things that you say to yourself. Yeah, is it the the protective voice that the voice that protected you as a child? is no longer serving you as an adult. Is, is that kind of what is happening? Yes, there's a couple of things. One is that that's the psychological part. There's the um, neurological part, which is actually building neural pathways to happiness. And what part of the brain does that happen? In? It happens all over the brain. Mm-hmm. happens all over the brain. But what you want to do is you want to get out of the amygdala as fast as possible, right? That's the thing that kicks in in a quarter of a second. Mm-hmm. So if... Uh, that's where the the fear response happens, the the Mm -hmm. stress response happens. So what I teach is how to get yourself out of the stress response. So I do, I have a five-step system for that. It's real, teach it on your fingers. It's really fast and easy and it's it's neurobiologically, you you take yourself through your own system. So so you can get out of that stress response really fast. So you got to be able to know that it's happening for you to be able to do it, right? Um, Is that what a trigger is? Yeah. So okay. the the trigger triggers your stress. Yes. Right. So I teach how to trigger your relaxation response mm. and actually build neural pathways to happiness and relaxation and peace. And and, and there's data to back up oh, yeah. that this absolutely that this happens. Absolutely. That's so exciting too that we now with the brain imaging that we have oh, so that there is there is data that backs this. It's so great. It's so great. I mean, you know. Louise Hay and those that came before her, I mean, it's, this work really started in the late 1800s of positive affirmation and um, with science of mind. And um, I just love the idea of some guy in a stovepipe hat talking nice to himself <laughs> in front of the smoky mirror. <laughs> Go ahead. I cut you off. I like that. Um, and uh, so now that, that we know, like, so so you can make the new neural pathway w- with the positive self-talk, with the um, feeling it, emotionally feeling it. And you can build your tolerance for feeling good so it doesn't feel like bullshit. But you're going to go through the it feels like bullshit stage. Yeah. For sure. It seems like healing, emotional healing of any sort is so confusing and such a war between two voices. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the voice of you that was wounded and the voice of you that's whole. Yeah, And so coming back to, to your place that is whole, that is already at peace, even that it's already at peace, even when the, the stormy ocean of your emotions are, are in a hurricane on top of it, there is still a place of you that isn't disassociated, that is still peaceful. And it's about getting back to that over and over again and doing it so consistently and so many more times that your brain alters. Yeah. I mean, I've had nine concussions 
What? Because of being so abused. So, oh my God. Um, so for me, maybe it took a little bit more work yeah. <laughs> um, because I have so much brain damage. And even being able to sit and talk to you like this, to just talk consistently and make somewhat sense, took me so much work to be able to do and so much repetition to be able to do. Because the, the PTSD was so strong that I'd leave my body and disassociate all the time. So I'd barely be there here on the couch with you, let alone able to keep eye contact. <laughs> and um, being able to be cohesive mm -hmm. just didn't happen. Just wow. didn't happen. So I've done so much brain training with myself. That's a, that's amazing. And I would imagine, as with a lot of healing, is once you begin to feel a little bit of the results, it's easier to stay consistent. Absolutely. It's that that period between the old coping mechanisms, the mean voice, mm -hmm. keeping your life small, mm -hmm. repeating abusive relationship patterns, and the new part, mm -hmm. it's that valley in mm -hmm. between those two that is the biggest test. Yeah. And, and that's why the, you know, just being really easy on yourself, being really gentle on yourself, coming back to the kindness over and over, you're... Being consistent is important, but none of us are going to be perfect no. ever. So you do it as often as you can, and then you stop, and then you start doing it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yes. And you just say, oh, I stopped for a little while. I'm going to do it again. Not, I stopped for a while. I'm a useless piece of shit. I'll never be anything. Right. Right? That voice doesn't happen to me anymore. That's amazing. I don't think I've felt suicidal in two years. And that's definitely the longest I've ever gone. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. You have worked with uh, some very high profile uh, celebrity yeah. uh, people. Yeah. Uh, but I don't name them. Yes. <laughs> um, is there anything particular to their stories, situations, healing, that is worth sharing? Um, let's see. I'd say maybe one of the only, the first thing that sort of pops into my head is um, as far as trauma goes, where it comes from, how it happens, all the same as everyone else. Something that anyone with celebrity has to put up with um, in the invisible world, but is still very real, is thousands, tens of thousands of people energetically connecting to them that they don't know. And so when you, um, we have all kinds of energy connections between people, between, you know, the, the Trader Joe's checkout person, we have a nice little energy connection with them and then it drops. And then, you know, with our parents, there's much stronger ones with our close friends, there's really strong energetic bonds between us. So when you have um, and I've, I've, I've coached almost all of them on how to handle this. When you have thousands, tens of thousands of people you don't know kind of plugging into you and having opinions about you, and this is even before the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Now, oh my gosh, they can actually see all of these people. But that is, um, can be very traumatizing in and of itself. Because these energy connections can suck you dry and they feel it. Even if it's a positive thing? It can be. Yeah, because there's still unknown people connecting to them. But it, it, 
to have that many people connected to you can be, um, you can feel it. You feel it. I mean, have you ever been anywhere like um, India Mm-mm. or somewhere really, really crowded? Mm-mm. Like, well, you just mentioned Trader so, Joe's, the parking lot at Trader Joe's. The, tra- the parking lot at Trader Joe's yes. can be traumatizing. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. Um, so, so but I, I really have seen this with, with, famous, with every famous person I've worked with, that they just have all of these people plugged into them. That, that, um, what do they say? That you can only really have like six people that you're truly mm-hmm. deeply connected with, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And they have thousands. And so, what what do they do? Um, so, I I do a process with them. This is actually important to say, especially people, any people that are into energy healing or have heard of this. You never cut cords. There's a there. It goes in waves over the last twenty years. Um, of people going to these workshops or seminars where they cut cords and it's very, very dangerous. If you have ever seen a downed electrical wire, which I have seen, it's spraying all over the place and the energy's flying around and it's really dangerous to, to try to harness that. That's what happens when you cut energy cords with other people. So now, give me an example of what cutting an energy cord with somebody would look like. It would look like the way um, that these untrained healers do it is this is a real cord. If I were to take a scissors and cut this, right, it, it would break the cord mm-hmm. and the energy, right, like that right. downed electrical wire, right, and I'd get a terrible shock. Um, and the, the power, right, would still be running on mm-hmm. one end, but would be dead on the other end. Um, and this is what happens. They, you, they energetically cut these cords through, um, I've seen them use stone, I've seen them use swords, I've seen them use their hands, and they cut these energy cords. It's, it's become very fashionable again lately. But how, how are you cutting something that isn't physically well, because it, touchable? As a, as a trained energy healer, they are physically touchable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they might be invisible to your eye, but I can right. see them. So it's just you have to tune into the frequency of, of what it is. And so you would be touching someone with a sword? No, the energy cord, not the person. Oh, so but it's outside of your body? You. Yeah. I see. If, if you have energy cords going from one to another. So it's very popular. Like someone has a bad breakup mm-hmm. and they want to cut. The, we, we've heard that saying forever, right? Cut the cord, right? Because right. they're talking about an umbilical cord is where it mm-hmm. comes from. But this cutting of energy cords is very, very dangerous. So um, they use all different systems for cutting these invisible to most people energetic cords. And I think a lot of people do it without actually being able to see them. They're, it's that woo-woo thing we were talking about in the whole So is it where you have a picture of someone there or something that represents them? Um, some people do it that way, yes. They do. Yeah. They, they would have you bring a picture. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't do it that way. But anyway, you don't, don't ever cut cords. Uh-huh. You have to gently... And there is a very specific system for um, dis. Uh, I'm gonna come up disengaging. With the right word. Yeah, disengaging is a good word, but um, disemboweling. Don't disembowel. <laughs> Impaling. Um, you actually get where they meet in the middle, mm-hmm. and you dissolve the relationship. 
so that everything from one person goes back to them and everything from you comes back to you. Because what happens is, as you know, with transference, right, and other people's opinions, other people's come into you and cloud your own judgment, right? So mm-hmm. everything goes back to them, everything comes back to you, and you dissolve the relationship. You dissolve the connection very safely, and they come back. So I've done that with a lot of stars that I've worked with who had all kinds of symptoms of exhaustions and migraines, um, f- feeling very scattered and overwhelmed. And when you can release other people's energy cords, let theirs go back to them, everything from you come back inside you, you can be centered again, back, whole, and not have that overwhelmed, scattered, horrible feeling. So would that connection still be there even if this person went to live on a desert island for 10 years? Sure. And so what we do is we keep the love and disconnect anything. You sort of alluded to this earlier. Keep the love if they want to. If not, you can dissolve the whole relationship. Um, But keep the love and just remove anything negative or harmful in any way, any ill intent, and let that each go back to the other person. Mm. And you know, just being able to center within yourself is so important. And otherwise we get in these horrible codependent relationships yeah. and allow toxic people in our lives, allow toxic yes. people in your life. And that's why, you know, one of the most important things is to be able to not put yourself in that same place as your abuser, mm. you know, allow yourself to get away. And what you were saying earlier about, you know, women in the workplace, right? You've got to work to survive. You go to your job to make a living, and there's your abuser, and you're trapped with this person. And your ability to pay your bills depends on surviving that. Right. And maybe you have kids on top of that. Exactly. So it's all so intertwined. And um, I got on a, a thread the other day on Facebook where men were just being so horrible to the women on the thread about, like, well, just kick them in the balls and quit. And just, like, just, you, it doesn't work. Like, first of all, we don't have the same level of testosterone. But, <laughs> but That's not a solution. It's not a solution. And, and it shouldn't be up to us anyway. Exactly. <laughs> but it's that thing of you, when you are trapped in some way, that's when the trauma sets in. And that's where that PTSD happens between sexism and... Uh, sexism, that's where the connection between sexism and PTSD happens, is that we're often trapped in some way in these situations um, where we're just constantly having these big and little abuses while we are trying to survive and make a living. And would it be fair to say then that it's not dealing with that is not merely an intellectual endeavor? It's requires both the emotional part of the brain having the momentum to deal with it and the intellectual part of the brain knowing how to logistically go about it. Because logistically, I would imagine there are people saying, this is unacceptable, but I can't find the words. And there's just a generalized fear of me speaking up. Yeah. Yeah. Because when we do speak up, we're not believed. We're called a bitch. We're fired. We're fired. Right? So it, it, it's, it is emotional. It is mental. It's very physical. 
um, again, not not just if there's physical encounter. I mean, it's it's happening in your body. That stress is happening in your body. Right? Stress is a physiological response to not being safe. What do you think are the primary sources of men who act this way? Because I don't believe men are born that way. No, I don't believe. You know, I, I think in, in, unless you are, you know, born with some kind of of true mental illness and like psychopathy mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Um, then I think I do believe that all all men and women are basically good and have a massive capacity for love um, and right relations I think that it gets um, taught out of us through xenophobia um, and through that fear of people who are different yeah xenophobia is fear of people who are different and um through that lineage of trauma, which to me is a lineage of pain, you know, and, and only hurt people hurt people. People who aren't hurting don't hurt other people, right? Unless it's pure, straight-up self-defense, they're mm-hmm. not going to actively seek out violence. So I think there is um, just eons and eons and eons of pain that we're now dealing with, and that that reacting to someone or something with violence is a protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. And you only feel like you have to protect yourself if you've been hurt. So um, I, I think it's all, I think what's going on today that's been going on for millennia is, is this people stuck in trauma and people just acting from, uh, this the long term effects of it, and trying to protect themselves even when life or death isn't happening. The 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 stress response should only kick in when your life is being threatened, and when we get a stress response because our credit card was declined, because you know someone cut in front of us at the grocery store line. Those are not life and death situations. You haven't been in those lines. <laughs> Again, you haven't been to my Trader Joe's. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, so we have now, we now elicit the stress response when it's utterly unnecessary because yeah. it's not a life and death situation, right? And so we're in this place where we're constantly thinking we have to defend ourselves, but we only have a quarter of a second before that part of the brain kicks into the stress response. So unless we are intentionally trying to elicit the relaxation response, we're screwed. <laughs> yes. And aware of our triggers and fears. Yeah. 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 yeah well, we can't do anything without the awareness, right? Yeah. That's the first, the first step. It is. Yeah. We don't know it. We can't. Can't do anything about it. Yeah. Anything else um, you'd like to share? Yes. One last thing. Um, So the fourth thing was consistency, and the fifth thing is support. We're not made to do it alone. I mean, no, we're right. We're like it's no fun doing it alone anyway. No fun doing it alone. Oh my God. It's so much more fun doing it with others. And you know, we, we are communal beings. 
We are made to do things in community. We're not made to do it all alone. And so many of us have become lone wolves and don't, God, most women, I don't know how men are, but most women do not know how to ask for help. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, second that, um, the male friends I know. Our, we have to get to the point where our life depends on it, where we are looking at death. And even then it's in, I got to get back to you. <laughs> Right. So we're, we're, we're truly not made to do it alone. And I have been training myself and training other women and how to ask for help. And those of us who let ourselves do it, keep getting happier and healthier and keep having more fun. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're not made to do it alone. We're not able. We cannot see ourselves right? The eye can't see the eye. Mm-hmm. We can't see the picture if we're standing inside the frame. We need someone else's reflection. And when we bring our minds and our energy together, it multiplies tenfold anyway. And the feeling is amazing. The it feeling is. of community is amazing. We were talking about that before we started recording. I was uh, on Liz's uh your Twitter feed and that thing you posted about mm-hmm. the the flash mob playing uh, Stairway to Heaven. I watched it and it gave me the warmest feeling and just for a minute improved my faith in humanity. Actually, not for a minute. I'm still feeling it. Yeah. I'm still hours later. I'm still feeling that. God, people can be so fucking awesome. They can. Yeah, they can. Two things. Yeah. What are some tips for somebody who's in a workplace that doesn't feel safe Mm -hmm. and isn't sure they can go to human resources Mm -hmm. um so that is not my area of expertise is there someone who it is dale's area of expertise that's her her that's my partner and he can speak on that and name those resources till the cows come home um and he has very i don't want to mess it up he is there's very specific because of safety things that you can do okay and um, uh, what's his website um inclusionary leadership group okay so you can go to the inclusionary leadership group.com and um and he has i mean he that this is what he does he he, he, he goes to uh, corporations mm-hmm. and he speaks about and um, he has a whole training program for um for the team for upper management to and sexism and you know a lot of a lot of people don't think they're sexist (laughs) Mm -hmm. just like a lot of people don't think they're racist we know how that's been going a lot of people don't think they're sexist and they find out the little insidious ways that they are yeah and um, that's the 21st century mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. the 21st century version of sexism and racism Mm -hmm. is so yeah, it's it's hidden to a lot of a lot yeah. of people. So he really goes in there and helps them see it, um, and helps them move people of color and women up through the the ranks. So he's he's your source for that. And I don't want to misquote or or, okay. or say the wrong okay. thing in that. But um, what I work with is women internally. I work with the what I call the inner world. I got you. And helping them with their inner world, um, and really how to overcome the effects of sexism and PTSD. Um, and that's an in, in, it's an inside job and you need help. Self-value is, is so, so huge because the self-esteem goes right out the window. Um, when you've had 
you know, any, any bad thing happen to you. Um, so saying to yourself, you know, I'm worth it. And it's, it's going to take a leap of faith. It, when, whenever we try something new, it's so vulnerable. It takes such a leap of faith because we don't know how the other person's going to react. Mm. So, you know, I always start going within first. So, you know, just even just saying, I'm worth it. I'm worth getting help. I deserve help. And then my suggestion is go to your most trusted friend and start there. Start with someone you already trust who you have a better chance of them saying, yeah, sure, of course I'll help you. I'd be happy to help you because that is usually the response. You're usually happy to help them Mm -hmm. and they are equally happy to help you. Um, So always, whenever you're doing something new, start with the easiest way and build from there. And when you get good at that, then you can branch out more knowing that we can never control what another person says or does. Um, we can just accept and, and, um, really, really letting someone else love and help you is a beautiful act of love. Yes, it it is. Uh, because it, it helps the person who's helping you feel better about themselves, feel a sense of meaning and purpose, feel more connected to humanity. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and as a healer, you know, people, people often like apologize when they need my help. And I'm just like, Without you, I don't get to do my calling. I don't get what I'm here to do. Humans naturally love helping each other. Most of us really, really love the feeling of helping our friends. Yeah. Um, And and, and the last thing that I would add to that um, is if you don't have somebody that you feel you can reach out to, a good page for uh that has a list of resources is Mm helpguide.org um you might you might go check that out Beautiful. and uh sometimes being desperate is the best gift that you can be given because it's the mother of invention yeah it gets you (laughs) it gets you off your butt yeah uh, to take that scary step but yeah and you know i love i love talking about asking for help because we we so I come back to this point just because it's important. We so we're not even made to go it alone. You know, we can have some the, some of that guilt asking for help. But when I come back to like, oh right, like humans aren't even made to do things alone. Oh, we're social animals. We're social animals. Like that alleviates the guilt for me. That's how I got to at least start asking for help. Was like accepting my humanity. You know, oh right, I'm human. I'm gonna need help with things. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I can boil it down. <laughs> uh, Liz, Elizabeth, however you prefer to be uh, addressed. It's Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Um, thank you so much for uh, coming and sharing mm. all of your wisdom and experience. Thank and you. Uh, we'll put all your links up in the link to your partner's uh, page. Sure, yeah. And yeah. I'm sure I'll forget some of them and then I'll uh, <laughs> go back and put them up, but I won't shame myself. No, no. You're, it's yeah. it's always good enough and we can always do better. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to uh, Elizabeth. And I mentioned at the top of the show that I had a, st- a story that I wanted to share with you about somatic experiencing. 
We will get to that in one second. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. They have a new series called Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. How delicious does that sound? I have always been fascinated by the darker side of human nature, and I have a feeling this is going to be really good because I've done their course on um, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, or I should say done their course. I've listened to their lectures on it, and I just completed their series of lectures on the Irish identity, especially through literature, and learned a lot about Celtic history, uh, political history of Ireland, and its culture, especially expressed through the literature of James Joyce, uh, William Butler Yeats, um, on and on and on and on. And it's so, so detailed. Uh, I think you guys will dig it. So with The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to learn from award-winning professors and experts about virtually any topic, human behavior, people in places throughout history, the universe. You can learn about mindfulness, how to cook, thousands of lectures to stream across your TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone with The Great Course Plus app. So if you sign up for The Great Courses Plus today, you'll get a special limited time offer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental to get a free month of unlimited access to all their lectures. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. For your free one-month trial, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. And now, the aforementioned story. Uh, I am recording right now in my backyard, and the sprinklers might be going on at any minute, and I'm sitting here with my laptop, and it's night, and I'm sitting by, I don't know, let me see if you if you can hear the fountain, but there's this fountain in the backyard that the birds feed at, or drink at, and it attracts a lot of wildlife and when I'm stressed out I come in the backyard and I sit by this little fountain and I have a lot of little solar lights set up in the backyard and it's one of the most peaceful places for me on earth eh, that's a little exaggerated let's go with that it's it's the most relaxing place in the solar system but I decided to come out here and do the intro tonight from here because I'm feeling kind of stressed out and I just thought it'd be an interesting idea to to come out here and um, I don't have any surveys with me. I've been having a little bit of problem with the uh, SurveyMonkey website because you guys are so awesome and have taken so many of these surveys they won't load the shame and secret survey has broken survey monkey it again that's an exaggeration the surveys have broken the planet there are about nine thousand of you who have taken the shame and secret surveys and i'm a bit behind on them i'm about a year behind because i can only read so many before I uh, get into a, 
a catatonic uh, trauma stupor. And I wanted to get some for tonight, but it won't load. And I've been talking to Survey Monkey about having them um, tweak whatever it is that needs to be tweaked so that I can look at these surveys. All of this is a really long-winded way of saying I'm really relaxed right now. Listen to the fountain bubble. There's a couple of little rose bushes. Lots of hummingbirds come by here. And I feel so much less stressed out right now than I do normally when I record the intro and outro just 30 feet away in in my bedroom. And I wonder why that is. Is it nature? Is it that I'm trying something new? Because something new is there's usually a fear of I'm going to make a mistake. It's not going to be well received. Um... Oh, look at that. You can hear a little car in the distance. I'm not sure how much of this that you guys can hear, but this neighborhood that I moved into is... Uh, oh, there we go. Go, baby, go. For the most part, it's really quiet. And when I sit out here, especially at night, the only thing I hear is the fountain and birds. And of course, all you're going to hear now are motorcycles and airplanes. See, here's an airplane coming from Burbank Airport. But what I wanted to talk about, two things I wanted to talk about, a couple of things that were um, touched on in a really beautiful way at my support group meeting, one of my support group meetings, which I just came from. Um, And then I want to talk about uh, somatic experiencing, which gets touched on very heavily in this episode with uh, Elizabeth Menzel. So, one of the things we talked about at the support group tonight was fear of intimacy, fear of letting people into our lives, yet desperately, desperately wanting to be seen and validated and to have that hole of loneliness inside us filled. But the crux is that we want to control the way that we're seen. We want to control what intimacy looks like and the very nature of intimacy is that you can't control it is that you have to be vulnerable and you have to trust like right now I have some trust going with that plane that's overhead I can't change that plane and it can't change me unless it plummets from the sky in a fiery ball and roasts me like a marshmallow getting back to my point Why is it so hard to let go? Is it because so many of us had our trust violated as children? Or does everybody struggle with that fear of intimacy? Come close, but don't get too close. And what is healthy? What's a healthy distance? As many mistakes as I made in my marriage and not being the guy I would have liked to have been. One of the things I can give myself credit for is learning how to disagree and express my feelings and being willing to have difficult conversations despite me wanting to jump out of my skin. Because avoiding shit was no longer working for me. Once I got enough recovery 
I began to feel the feelings I'd buried as a kid, all of that trauma. And if I wanted to stay sober and sane, I had to find a way to deal with it instead of running. Because that to me is just as bad as picking up a bottle or a needle or whatever it is to take us into oblivion. And walking through the fear of initiating a conversation about something that you know is probably going to upset somebody else or at the very least deny them something that they hope to get or maybe it's just shaking up the status quo but you know it's going to elicit a reaction in them that will be uncomfortable of course now now there is I don't know who this is walking through the yard next door (laughs) this very well might be my murder caught on tape so for for the sake it is 10.30 p.m. Pacific time Wednesday night July 27th 2018 I have truthfully never heard this much noise in my backyard continuing walking through that fear of having those difficult conversations has become the foundation of any adulthood I've been able to experience in the last couple of years. I lived in this childhood bubble of wanting to avoid anything that would upset me or upset anybody else. And it's no wonder my life began to fall apart around the age of 40. I learned how to take deep breaths. I learned how to phrase something diplomatically to not have the other person feel cornered, to express things in terms of my feelings rather than attacking somebody by saying, you're this, or you always do this, to choose my words selectively. It was a beautiful meeting, and I felt so much peace at the end of it. I think I wanted that to continue out here. And there's a part of my brain right now that's saying this is so self-indulgent and precious and new agey. And here comes the plane that is going to crash into the back of your head. Maybe if a plane did crash into the back of my head, I would be the new Nostradamus though. People would say, how could he have known? He must have been a seer into the future. The second thing I wanted to talk about is one of the things we talk about in this episode with Elizabeth Menzel. We talk about this guy named Peter Levine who invented... I don't know if that's the right word, semantic experiencing, which is a way of releasing trauma. And I won't repeat 
the explanation of what it is right here because you will hear about it later. But I wanted to share the experience that I had with it about seven or eight days ago because it was life-changing. And what led me to go seek a somatic experiencing therapist was this episode you're about to hear with Elizabeth Menzel. She stayed at my house for probably an hour after we recorded this, and I felt really comfortable opening up to her, and she pointed me in the direction of some, uh, as much as I hate the word, healers to help me because I felt like there was still some trauma trapped in my body, despite all the therapy and all the support groups. And this theory that she will explain in the episode, it made sense to me. Recurring tension, uh, finding myself clenching. So I went to probably five sessions with this somatic experiencing therapist named Amy. And she's also a licensed, she's not a uh, licensed psychotherapist. She is licensed under Peter Levine to do somatic experiencing. And she's also a licensed massage therapist, which I wanted because they can also put their hands on you and help loosen up areas of your body. We did five sessions, and I felt some relief, a little bit. And just when I was thinking, I don't know if this thing works, I had my sixth session, like I said, about eight days ago. And I was very skeptical of this whole thing. But sometimes you got to be willing to get out of your comfort zone and try shit that you don't think is going to work just so you can check it off the list. So, one of the first visits to Amy, I looked around her place and lots of crystals, lots of pictures of yogis. I tried to not judge. She said, oh, here are my two cats. Uh, One of them senses when people need emotional assistance and sometimes he'll pop in the room the room i was about to bolt at that point because i was like this is too this is too california for me but a little voice in my head said just hang in there so i go to this session eight days ago not expecting to get anything out of it and the cat Sanjay is the cat's name. I hope to God not named after the one for, the person from American Idol. <laughs> Comes into the room. And as she gets me up on the table, Sanjay jumps up on the table. And part of what Amy does with the somatic experiencing is to get me to a place where I feel safe. Orient myself be it something to look at in the room that comforts me, a sensation that comforts me, an idea that comforts me, and to just remind myself over and over and over again that I 
am safe right here, right now, which sounds really obvious. But to that part of our body that is still highly connected to the fight or flight part of our brain, it still believes that, that there is some type of threat. So she starts relaxing. Me, I don't even remember what it was. Oh, I remember. So the, the, those of you that know my life from listening to the podcast, two big things of it, one big thing of it lately was the, the passing away of my uh, dog, Herbert, about a year ago. And I've still been struggling with the sadness around it. I'm sure some of it had to do with the fact that he wasn't, to me, he was my, <laughs> so cheesy, he was my innocent, beautiful little baby boy. And I would struggle to ever feel that way about the little me that went through some pretty horrific shit when I was a kid. Some of it sexual, some of it medical. Um, and I'm laying on the table and I'm thinking about Herbert. And Sanjay hops up on the table and curls up on my body right where most of my scars are, where most of my trauma happened, either on my genitals or around it. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if that I wonder if that's Herbert, because I was thinking about Herbert at that moment. I thought, I wonder, maybe that's Herbert from, from the great beyond saying he's here. And, and I started to smile and kind of relax. And, and then Amy said, that's weird. Sanjay is wagging his tail like a dog. It was probably coincidence that that happened. But in that moment, I took it and I ran with it that this was that Herbert was here telling me that he loves me and he hasn't gone away. He's just changed forms. And in that moment, I felt so comforted by Amy and by this cat, which I was imagining as Herbert sitting on me, protecting me. And in that moment, I, I felt the love the unconditional love and the protection, whether imagined or not, of this cat and this woman. And something in me opened up, and I was that 11-year-old boy on a medical table, naked, terrified, wishing my mom would say something, wishing that the doctor would take all of these students that he had brought in unannounced, wishing that somebody would cover me up and that I wouldn't be there completely naked. And I started crying as if I was on that table. I knew I wasn't 11 at that, in that moment. But emotionally, the sounds that were coming out of me were like the sounds that a child would make when they were terrified and somebody was hurting them. And the fact that, and, and Amy just kept squeezing my arm and saying, you're safe here, you're safe here. 
um, and she had me look look in her eyes because I was kind of ashamed that I was crying as hard as I was, and and parts of my body were like spasming, and it was like my brain was divided into three different part parts. One part that was like, "This is kooky," another part that was like, "This is awesome. This shit this shit needs to come up and out," and another part that was worried that I was the most pathetic client that she'd ever had and I tried not to listen to any of those voices and just focus on the pain and embracing it and making whatever noise felt like it needed to be made and and I'm crying I'm I'm sobbing I'm wailing and I kid you not this cat get climbs up towards my face and its tail starts wiping the tears on my face that which brought up another whole wave and all of this shit might be coincidental but I used it and I'm proud of myself for using that moment to further my healing and I think that's an important thing for us to do is to to not always know what the truth about everything is, but to explore our feelings around it. And trying giving weight to something to see if something comes up. And it doesn't mean that we have to broadcast it or confront somebody or set it in stone. But we open ourselves up to emotional experiences that can have incredible depth and incredible healing powers, even though we're kind of laughing at them at the time. I am so grateful I got to experience that. And I'm going to continue to see her when I come back from overseas. And I just wanted to say, try shit that you think might not work. If you're stuck, just keep trying shit. Because sometimes the universe will surprise the shit out of you. And it's like, I, you know, I eat, I eat my Ben and Jerry's every night looking for that, that, that streak of caramel that's going to be bigger than any other streak of caramel I've ever found. And in that moment of experiencing that healing, I found a chunk of love from the universe that I didn't think existed. I know that people love me in my life and in my support groups. But this was different. This was like a spiritual thing. Like like love from the, the fourth dimension, I guess. Oh, God, I'm starting to make myself sick. Isn't it nice I'm back to uh, <laughs> cynical? Oh, there's a part of me that is so afraid that this is self-indulgent and new agey and that this has become the new 
podcast cliche, but I think it's important. I have a hunch that moments like this are important to share, and I hope that this can help somebody. And if you don't feel that way, go fuck yourself. That's not how I wanted to end that, but we're going to have to go with that. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.